May your praise ever be on our lips, for you are our way maker. When life just seems so overwhelming, when we cannot see the light at the end of the tunnel, when we're just stuck in the, the forest, it is so great to know that you are always with us. that with you we will find a way. Thank you for your presence here with us this morning. Thank you for your presence within us wherever we go. Now, Lord, would you open our hearts and minds to receive what it is that you have decreed we should learn this morning. May your church be edified May you be glorified. Speak through me, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, it is graduation uh, time. Uh, many high schools around the, the, the nation uh, are celebrating graduation. And unfortunately, it can be a time of public outrage. I don't know if you caught this or not this past week. This is in um, a conservative state, uh, Ohio. I just happened to see this because it was national news. Public outrage ensued following the River Valley graduation ceremony. This is in Marion County. Um, uh, after alumni speaker Jim McGuire condemned homosexual relationships Friday in his commencement speech. McGuire, a River Valley graduate, who now is the owner of a manufacturing company, J.L. McGuire & Associates, encouraged the students of the Marion County Public Schools to pursue the biblical principles of only romantic relationships between a man and a woman. After opening his speech by encouraging the graduates to spend time learning God's word, McGuire made the following comment about relationships. Now, mind you, this article has already said that McGuire condemned homosexual relationships. This is what he said. Choose a spouse, I suggest. I also strongly suggest to make sure to choose biblical principles. You know, a male with a female and female with a male, he said. Well, that was it. Across social media uh, in, in Marion County in conversation, the Marion community has been responding to the speech with public outcry. Alexis Osipo is a 2018 River Valley graduate who was at the ceremony to support her younger sister who was graduating. This is what she, she said. When he made the comment that marriage should only be between a man and a woman, my jaw dropped to the floor. That is where we are as a, as a country. You make that statement, it's shock. And I honestly thought as I was hearing it, wrong. I had to look around and see if other people were having the same reaction that I was. And they were. I felt like crying when I heard some people in the crowd clapping. But I was absolutely outraged and so were my parents and brother. I heard people behind me whispering about how inappropriate the comment was as well. In the Columbus Dispatch, a few days later, there's an opinion article by a gentleman by the name of Ray Eichenberger of Reynoldsburg, Ohio, which is near Columbus. He says, thank you to the River Valley High School graduation speaker 
who had the courage to encourage the graduates to obey God's word and enter into heterosexual relationships in their lives. I read the speech online. It didn't bash gays. It wasn't rude or offensive. The man merely asked the graduates to place God first in their lives and urged the graduates to obey his word. This issue he talks about is becoming a freedom of speech issue where religious freedom is also at stake. This man had an absolute right to express his personal viewpoints to the graduates, and the graduates and guests should have had the maturity to sit and listen to his point of view. It's becoming very sad and offensive in America that the word of God and God's laws are discarded by an overtly vocal minority and that the majority of us can't exercise our freedom of speech and freedom of religion for fear of offending loud and obnoxious special interest groups. As Acts 5.29 says, we, we ought to obey God rather than men. Now, that is really a, a sign of the times that where we are at this point in time in history in our, our culture and in our nation. And so it requires something a little more, I will say, of Christians uh, today. We've looked at this passage a number of times as we address this issue of homosexuality. I don't need to spend a whole lot of time on this. We went over this the last two weeks. But this is a very clear passage. Do you not know, or do you not know, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? It's, Paul is not singling out anybody here. Okay? This is a, a list, a representative list of unrighteous people. Fornicators, adulterers, adulterers, effeminate, homosexuals, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, swindlers, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the interesting point is that there obviously is a te- tendency to be deceived about this. So I want to begin by talking about um, a confusing message. And this will be a, since I've addressed homosexuality in the past, I want to do a little bit of a different take on it this morning. But and when I say a confusing message, I'm pointing the finger at us. On the Dominic Natty Show, American contemporary Christian music singer and songwriter, Lauren Daigle was asked, do you feel that homosexuality is a sin? She replied, you know what? I can't honestly answer on that. I have too many people that I love that are homosexual. I don't know. I can't say one way or the other. I'm not God, so when people ask questions like that, That's what my go-to is. I just say, read the Bible and find out for yourself. And when you find out, let me know, because I'm learning too. Well, not trying to in any way, shape, or form um, defend her, it's a loaded question. You understand that? Uh, American Christian rapper, songwriter, uh, record executive, entrepreneur, Lecrae, you ever heard of him? Uh, Was asked, so if your male son comes to you at 23 years old and says, Dad, I'm engaged to a man, I'm going to get married next month, and I want you to be in the wedding, what would you say? 
He gave a long answer, so I had to kind of condense it down. My thing is like this. My brother is gay, and so I don't condemn him. I don't look down at him for being attracted to the opposite sex. I don't condemn him. What I'm saying, like, if anything, we will dialogue so I can have a better understanding because I don't profess to be like I got this all figured out. I know the way this should be. In other words, what the Bible clearly says on this issue. But I'm like trying to read the Bible. I feel like anybody who wants to come at a person negatively, what he means by that is saying homosexuality is a sin, it's like you're not giving me the space and the grace to learn. You could point something out to me and say, hey, this is what it says, i.e. homosexuality is a sin. You should know better. Give me the grace and the space to take my time and understand their perspective on it and understand why these people think this way. That's the perspective I have. I don't need to sit there and, and tell you the influence that these, you know, Lauren Daigle and the Cray have. Okay? Uh, Pastor Joel Olstein, in an interview with Piers Morgan, and this was right around the time of the 2014-2015, the Defense of Marriage Act and all of that, was asked about same-sex marriage and if it's wrong or if it's sin. And he said, yes, I think same-sex marriage, it's wrong, but I'm not going to bash those people. I am going to be against, I'm not going to be against those people. They're good people. But you are judging those people, Pierce Morgan comes back at him, and he says, well, to me, I'm not the one to judge and say who's bad and who's good. Otherwise, you'd have to go through and judge every sin like, I got some pride or an evil thought. Those are sins, too. I don't know if God is judging sins on different levels, but we pick out that one. Our message, means what he preaches, is about lifting people up. It's a hard issue, I mean, the homosexuality issue, and I don't know if I fully understand it. Now, again, this is a hot-button issue. It's a loaded question, and this is how these people are responding. His, I think he still has the largest church in America. Is it 45, 50,000 people? And it, used, it meets at the, used, used to be the summit in Houston, Texas. I went to a Journey concert there in 86 and a couple Houston Rockets basketball games. So there's a, a huge, huge, huge church. I don't know how many people Lecrae and Lauren Daigle you know, have access to an influence. But when I, I looked at all three of those answers to the question, is homosexuality sin? And I, I discovered two themes. Ignorance and tolerance. Ignorance. I'm trying to understand what the Bible says about the issue. That's kind of what I hear. I don't fully understand it. I'm trying to understand it. It's, it's not a gray area, okay? Now, tolerance. Because Christians are called to love and not judge, I'm not going to condemn or judge their sin. So as you undoubtedly already know, since this issue has been addressed here at, at Bible Chapel, I mean, God's word is clear in this and what he thinks about homosexuality. But why are so many Christians claiming ignorance on this issue? 
Why are they afraid to take a stand and boldly speak the truth? Well, let me explain to you why this is the case. Why this is the, the, the reason why. And, and, and it, I think your eyes will be open. Let's talk about how we got here. Now in Romans 1, 18 to 32, which again we've gone over a number of times, we read a very familiar passage on the judgment of God. In that phrase, in fact, get your Bibles out. Turn to Romans 1, 8, 24 to 32. While you're getting there, I'll still speak. In this passage, Paul uses the phrase, God gave them up three times. What that means is, is that that's when God abandons society and he gives them over to the consequences of their behavior leading to judgment. And so for my purposes this morning, I want you to pay particular attention to the sequence of what happens, and again, I've gone over this, when God abandons a nation. And the first thing that people do, obviously, is they reject the truth about God. They actually suppress the truth. Then we read this, starting in verse 24. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. So when God abandons the culture, the first thing that happens is it becomes obsessed with sex and every kind of sexual behavior. You call this a sexual revolution. Do you want to know why that happens? Or the fact that God gives them over to that? When you harden a heart, in particular, you harden your heart against God. What's the difference between a hard heart and a soft heart? There's one difference. Well, a soft heart feels, right? A hard heart doesn't feel. So when you have no feeling in the heart, your heart is created to do what? You want to feel. You want emotion, right? We seek feeling. All the songs, that, you know, love songs that we write, it's all about emotion and feeling, right? You've got that loving feeling, right? Well, if you can't feel it, you're going to seek the feeling, and the feeling then gets centered on the physical body. And that comes through sex. Well, you know that after a while, sex becomes repetitive and routine. You've got to take it to another level to get the same feeling, the same fix, you want to call it. And so they, they keep going over and over, and you experiment more and more and more. That's a sexual revolution. Verse 26, for this reason, here it is again, the second time, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving themselves a due penalty for their error. So the second thing that happens when God abandons a culture following a sexual revolution is a homosexual revolution. This is accompanied with sexually transmitted diseases associated with homosexual behavior. That's what the phrase, receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error is referring to. Now there's a new penalty for this sin. What's the latest thing that's come out that is right now, if I remember correctly, limited to the homosexual community? Monkeypox. Verse 28, the third God gave them up. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. 
They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Do you want to know why someone will go into an elementary school and kill 19 children? Do you want to know why? It seems like right now, every other night, there is a new shooting, and it's just, it's, un, it's, it's rampant. It's right here. God has given our you know, people in our country up to this. He's given our country. We've rejected him. He's given us up. We're under his judgment. And the, the mind is so insane that, yes, they can't tell if they're male or female, so they have this transition surgeries. They know God's decree, verse 32, that those who practice such things deserve to die, but there's no shame. So they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And that's the third thing that happens when God abandons a culture. It's a depraved mind, an insane mind. It's a mind that can't function properly and think right. So when a society affirms homosexuality, it brings the judgment of God. And I went over this a few years ago. Every culture, from the Babylonian culture to the Medo-Persian culture to the Greek culture, the Roman culture, those, those, they are all Egyptian culture. They all affirmed homosexuality, and they were judged. And there are many other. You read Isaiah and Jeremiah. God brings judgment when we violate his laws. It's that simple. But my question for us really this morning is, how does that judgment play out? I mean, what are the, 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 the details of this playing out? Well, God allows society to gradually affirm and for purposes this morning, homosexuality. Homosexuality continued to be ignored or tolerated by the Christian church throughout Europe. But in the latter 12th century, hostility toward homosexuality began to take root and eventually spread throughout European religious and secular institutions. And religious teachings soon were incorporated into legal sanctions. By that point in time, many of the American colonies early American colonies, enacted stiff criminal penalties for sodomy. Now, what is sodomy? Does anyone know what that is? When God judged Sodom and Gomorrah for what sin? From that point on in the Bible, every time the word homosexual is used, it's the word sodomy. So when you're a sodomite, you're homosexual, okay? But by the end of the 19th century... In America, even though homosexuality was considered a sickness, some adopted a more accepting stance of homosexuality. And in 1881, it was Sigmund Freud who came along and said, well, I've studied homosexual behavior, and I've concluded it's a psychological disorder that comes from a domineering mother. Do you remember that? Go ahead, about 20 years, 1901, Havelock Ellis argued that homosexuality was inborn and therefore not immoral, that it was not a disease, and that many homosexuals made outstanding contributions to society. That was from the psychology department of University of California, Davis. Ellis claimed that homosexuality is a genetic gift. Homosexualities are intellectual geniuses. He published a list of supposed homosexuals from Erasmus, 
who was a Dutch humanist, Christopher Marlowe, the English poet, Michelangelo, Francis Bacon, Oscar Wilde, Walt Whitman, and so on. Now for Ellis, a homosexual was an elevated human being at another level of genius. And it was in the 1940s and the 50s that Albert Kinsey, you might recognize that name from What is a Woman, came along and fabricated the lie that one out of 10 people in America were genetically homosexual. According to Wikipedia, you go to the 1960s, America then began to go through a sexual revolution that challenged traditional beliefs related to sexuality. The sexual liberation included increased acceptance of sex outside of traditional heterosexual monogamous relationships, including marriage, the normalization of contraception in the pill, public nudity, pornography, homosexuality, alternate forms of sexuality, and the legalization of abortion all followed. This is just simply history I'm going over with everybody here. Come to 1973, again, from the psychology department of University of California, Davis. With the changing social norms and the development of a politically active homosexual community in the United States, the American Psychiatric Association declassified homosexuality as a sickness. And in 1986, they began to work intensively to eradicate the stigma historically associated with homosexual orientation. Well, that's history, and that's kind of briefly, in a nutshell, how we got to where we are, because we're going to continue talking about history, but not, because we're going to talk about more specifically how this all plays out in what I call an effective strategy. Because I want to shift from discussing history to discuss in a more specific strategy applied by homosexual activists. I think your minds will be blown away when you hear this because what I'm gonna share with you is gonna feel like history. And I got this from Vadi Bachman in a sermon entitled, Is Gay the New Black? from November of 2014. He wrote this. Remember, in 1986, they changed the definition of homosexuality. It's no longer a mental illness. Two years later, in 1988, there was a meeting of 104 leading homosexual activists where they strategized how they could change the way people view homosexuals and homosexuality. In May of 1989, roughly a year later, the book, After the Ball, How America Will Conquer Its Fear and Hatred of Gays in the 90s, was released by Marshall Kirk and Hunter Madsen. There are two Harvard professors. One was a professor of psychology. The other was a professor in marketing. Now, in this book, they write of what they call the moment. Now, what was going on in 1988, and it really exploded in 1991, was, of course, AIDS. Okay? Listen to what they wrote in this book. AIDS, though a loose cannon is a cannon indeed, as cynical as it may seem, AIDS gives us a chance, however brief, to establish ourselves as a victimized minority, legitimately deserving of America's special protection and care. This, therefore, is the question and the challenge. How can we surmount our insurmountable opportunity? 
How can we maximize the sympathy and minimize the fear? How, given the horrible hand AIDS has dealt us, can we best play it? In other words, how do we take advantage of the AIDS crisis? Because you never let a crisis go to waste. That's the moment. Now they talk about the method. The campaign we outline in After the Ball, though complex, depends centrally on a program of unabashed propaganda firmly grounded in long-established principles in psychology and advertising. Now remember, there are two professors of what? Psychology and marketing. And this is what they say about propaganda. Three characteristics distinguish propaganda from other modes of communication and contribute to its sinister mode of operation. So in other words, what they're telling you is, we know this is sinister. Number one, it relies on emotional manipulation. Number two, it uses lies. And number three, it's subjective and one-sided. And this is their strategy. Emotional manipulation, lies, and one-sided subjectivity. Quote again, tell our side of the story as moving as possible in the battle for hearts and minds, effective propaganda knows enough to put its best foot forward. This is what our own media campaign must do. This is back in 1989. And what did they do with their media campaign? And here's the even more specifics of their strategy. It's called desensitizing, jamming, and conversion. Now, by the way, these are the three same steps to brainwashing. This is the way they wanted to change the way people thought, particularly about homosexuality. This is how they want society and the church to move away from what the Bible says about homosexuality to another understanding. Number one, desensitizing. I quote, what does that look like? to desensitize straights to gays and gayness and undate them in a continuous flood of gay-related advertising presented in the least offensive fashion possible. If straights can't shut off the shower, they may at least get used to being wet. So there's a, a media campaign where they're barring you, they, they bombard us with homosexuality, gayness. And so if we're honest with each other, we see a gay character on TV, do we get offended anymore? We're just kind of used to it. Well, how? Well, if they're in movies, right? TV shows, commercials, outed actors and athletes, these are all the ways that we are desensitized. And by the way, in the movies, you ever notice this? The homosexual character has to be the best dressed, the most intelligent, and the funniest character in the movie or TV show. So when an actor comes out, you know, that's okay. We kind of expect that, right? But when an athlete comes out, this is more important. So when an NBA player comes out, you know, the President of the United States at this point in time was Barack Obama. He congratulates him. This is why when NFL player Michael Sam comes out, remember that, anybody? 
revolutionary. He comes out before the NFL draft. It's national news. Well, why? Because these are the images that must be put forward for this particular propaganda campaign. These people are heroes. They are the ideal. And the White House spoke, speaks out affirming these athletes. Now, why is that important? Well, we're going to move from the second point of strategy, strategy from desensitizing to jamming. And I'll explain to you what jamming is. See, jamming requires a particular type of exposure. This is what jamming is. Jamming works when you take two contradictory images and put them side by side for comparison. So Christians hate the idea of Nazis, skinheads, and the KKK. So what you do is you portray those who are against same-sex marriage as being akin to what? Nazis, skinheads, and, or the KKK. Now since nobody wants to be accused of being a Nazi, a skinhead, or the KKK, guess what? Eventually, nobody's gonna to want to be accused of being against same-sex marriage. This is jamming. And the strategy is, is this, the accused religious people. See, gays can use talk to muddy the moral waters. That is to undercut the rationalizations that justify religious bigotry and jam some of its psychic rewards. Portray anti-gay institutions as antiquated and backwards and badly out of step with the times and the latest findings of psychology. Now, let me show you what this means. And you'll see this and why I read those quotes from uh, Lauren Daigle, Lecrae, and Pastor Joe Olstein. And if we're honest with each other, we would probably answer similarly to the way that they have, or at least Pastor Joe Olstein did. You know, it's, it's a sin, but you know, I'm going to what? Love the sinner, but hate the sin. And, and, and here's what happens. And we're talking to me, a pastor. Your average sermon from your pastor on homosexuality, this is what we find, that the average sermon from your pastor on homosexuality, the first third of it will be apologizing. Now, granted, that's not me, but there are plenty of pastors that don't address these issues. But the pastors come out because they want to address the issue and they start off by apologizing. So imagine this coming from a pastor on a Sunday morning. Church, we're going to address the issue of adultery. But I don't want you to be alarmed. I'm not here to bash adulterers. I love adulterers. Jesus loves adulterers. I have friends who are adulterers and I believe their church needs to be open and accepting toward adulterers and I want you to be accepting too. I mean, that's insane, right? But this is what we expect from pastors who preach on homosexuality. Well, why? They've been jammed. We don't want to be associated with being the wrong side of the aisle on this issue, right? This is why Daigle, Lecrae, and Osteen answered the way that they did. Does that make sense? It's propaganda, it's brainwashing. And it's been successful. Think about this. The most onerous sin, one of the most grossest sin is homosexuality in the Bible. 
this issue in what's going on in our culture has us apologizing for that sin and what God says about it. And that's not right. But that's the way we feel. And that's the way we respond. We immediately go to, yeah, it's sin, but it's not like it's just a sin. It's like every other sin. Yes, that's true. But what is unique about the sin of homosexuality? Is there any other sin? Did adultery cause God to rain down fire and brimstone on a, on a, on a nation? No. Does adultery tie with it, or idol worship, a physical consequence to the sin? They don't. But the last step in the process, you go from desensitizing to jamming to conversion. Both desensitization, desensitization and jamming are extremely useful, but they're mere preludes to our highest, though necessarily long-range goal, and I'm reading from this book again, which is conversion. It isn't enough that anti-gay bigots should become confused about us or even indifferent to us. We are safest in the long run when we can actively make them like us. In fact, they have a whole section in this book on love the sinner and hate the sin mentality, and they despise that. That's not good enough. That's not conversion because you're still calling homosexuality a sin. They say, please don't confuse conversion with political subversion. By conversion, we mean something far more profoundly, more threatening to the American way of life without which no truly sweeping change can occur. They are trying to change American culture and the American way of life. We mean conversions of the average American's emotions, minds, and will through a planned psychological attack in the form of propaganda fed to the nation via the media and the schools. Those are direct quotes from that book. Now, does that sound like history to you? So now homosexuality is not only acceptable, but it's advocated, right? That's why I read that story in the very beginning. A simple statement about a man and a woman being married. Choose that route. There is a massive backlash and kickback to that. But by whom is advocating homosexuality other than homosexual advocates? Well, it's certainly not the church, right? No, you'd be wrong. Pastor T.D. Jakes was asked this. Well, he was asked the question, can the church and the LGBTQ community coexist? And he didn't waver at all. He said, absolutely, it can coexist. In one sense, it can, okay? In the sense that every the church can coexist in a sinful world. But he was asked this specifically in another way. question is, is this. How should the black church and the LGBT community coexist? Because, yeah, the church isn't going to turn on anybody. In that regard, we can coexist. But here is what he said when he answered this question, how should the black church and the LGBT community coexist? It's so funny, too, because this was back, I think, during 2015, 2016. They forgot the QIA+. That's how much it's changed. It was LGBT back then. Which is, by the way, the B stands for what? Which infers what? Two, right, two sexes? You had the Q on it, and they're saying no. But it's even more. There we go. 
Here's what he said. I think it's going to be diverse from church to church. Every church has a different opinion on the issue. See? And every gay person is different, and I think that to speak the black church and the white church are all the same is totally not true. LGBT have to find a household of worship that reflects what your views are and what you believe like anybody else. In other words, he's saying this. Whether he acknowledges it or not, the war is already lost. He assumes that the church is affirming or accepting of that lifestyle. Because he's not quoting any verses or anything. He's just saying it's diverse from church to church. And they can coexist. So he's also implying that you can be a Christian and be, for example, gay. There's a lot of literature out there saying that that's true. But it's not just him. American uh, sociologist, pastor, author, former spiritual advisor to, to Bill Clinton, Tony Campolo, on the issue of homosexuality, was asked a similar question. He answered this. I just knew too many wonderful Christian people who were in gay relationships. And I know this, my own marriage has been an incredible relationship. Nothing has nurtured me more as a Christian than my wife, having had this kind of experience with marriage that became the basis for my final decision. Notice it wasn't what the Word of God clearly states. It says, I knew too many gay couples who were living out the Christian life, who were committed to the work of the kingdom, and were in edifying relationships. That's the word I use. Because he'd been in an edifying relationship with his wife, and these people were in an edifying relationship. He says, my relationship with my wife has been spiritually edifying. Do I want to deny this to a gay couple? Therefore, he affirms homosexuality in Christianity and in the church. Former pastor Rob Bell illustrates, in my opinion, how effective the homosexual propaganda strategy has been. Now remember, desensitization, desensitization, jamming, and conversion. Remember that? He says this, I think it's time for the church to acknowledge that we have brothers and sisters who are gay and want to share their life with someone. And this is part of a life in the modern world. And that cultural consciousness has shifted This is how the world is, and what's happening to a lot of people is that they want nothing to do with God and Jesus because they can't see beyond that particular issue. We need to love and affirm, and all of us walk, all of us together work on the real problems of this world. And I think that's what you are seeing now. God is pulling us all forward into a realization, to a greater realization, that is, that we need more love, more fidelity, more monogamy, It is not good for us to be alone. So this is a huge moment when lots of us are realizing that the old way of seeing doesn't work, i.e., what the Word of God clearly states. It causes so much pain and heartache, and God's inviting us to see things in a new way. He's been jammed big time. He doesn't want to be identified with that movement, the antiquated, anti-gay, which is what the Bible would be antiquated and anti-gay because it takes a stand on this issue. So within the church, this is being, they're not just affirming it, they're advocating for it. In the Methodist church, it's splitting. 
because they took a stand on this issue. Their, their, their church book of discipline says that, no, it's, it's what the Bible says, and it is this issue of marriage between a man and a woman. It's incompatible, homosexuality. And churches are leaving because they're afraid that they're going to go more liberal, and so a lot of these churches, 70 churches, more rural churches, have left, and there's a, a, a new United Methodist denomination called the Global United Methodist Church that's sticking to their guns, but it's splitting this issue. Because within the United Methodist Church, even though that's what they said, there were those that were practicing homosexuality, that were putting them in positions of pastors and leaders and churches and so on. This is the issue that, of our time. But the very first verse that we opened with this morning was from 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10. Now, this is just one of many unambiguous verses that reveal God's view of homosexuality. And there is no gray area here. In fact, I think that these verses warn us of being deceived in thinking that sinners inherit the kingdom of God. They do not. You could add to that list a pedophile. Do they inherit the kingdom of God? No. And most people would be against that. But not against homosexuality. And so Paul clears up this issue in no uncertain terms. It's 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10. Now Christians are called to love. And this is one of the reasons given from Lauren Daigle and others that I quote this morning that mentioned as to why she would not take a stand against homosexuality. She said this, I have too many people that I love that are homosexual. Yes, we are certainly called to love. But we are also called to what? Speak the truth. And so I ask you, is that the most loving thing you can do? Affirm someone in their sin knowing they will never inherit the kingdom of God? No. And I want to close this morning with this quote from Vadi Bachman. Again, in his, his sermon is Gay the New Black from November 2014. And he just says it far better than I can. He says, don't let anybody tell you that it's not loving to stand flat-footed and speak the truth about this issue of homosexuality. What's not loving is to look someone in the eye when God says they are in jeopardy of an eternity in hell and merely wink and nod at their sin because you're afraid of being called names. And that is a challenge for all of us. And so this is a different type of application point, and this is what it's come to, is that you're going to have to take a stand on this issue. Now, what would it look like for Bible Chapel, for example? Well, if someone comes in, and I don't know, if you can't tell by looking at them, but let's say um, a lesbian couple comes into this church. And over time, and they're worshiping with us and so on, over time that they... It comes to my attention or attention that they're in a, a lesbian relationship. What do you think this church would do? So you have to answer this question because I have my own answer, which is the answer for Bible Chapel, by the way. But what do you think that this church should do? And it's not, I'm within the Word of God. Let's say that I, I preached a sermon and, and, and they came to me with, with questions and they were concerned about what I said. And I found out 
what would I do? I would, would continue to speak the truth to them, and I would tell them that you can continue to worship here, but you will never be allowed to be in a position of leadership in this church. And it would be the same as if someone was a, a, a drunk, as I mentioned, drunkards, okay? Or someone was ex- involved in extortion or swindlers, okay? And my prayer for you is that you would repent of that sin and believe in Jesus so you will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, we are making a judgment on this, okay? But in love, I'm speaking the truth. And the prayer for, my, for them, this hypothetical couple, would be what for these people? They would, they would you know, wash, sanctified, justified. Verse 11, that we come to Christ. That's what they need. And if they stayed in this church, what would that be a sign of? Well, that God is at work in your life because what will most people do if they, they're gone? They are gone. And what most likely would happen, we'd be called, I'd be called a bigot, this church would be called bigoted, right, you know, homophobic, and so on and so forth. That's their playbook. That's what they have left. It is what it is. But do you understand why you feel the way you feel about homosexuality now? You've been desensitized, jammed, and even converted to some extent. And so I thought I'd take that angle this morning on this issue of homosexuality, what the Bible says about it. It's very clear. It's not up for debate. You've got to go outside of the Word of God to, to reason it as a lifestyle. Now, to also be very clear, if you struggle with a desire toward another, you know, if I struggle with a desire towards another man, but never acted on it, do I get to go to the kingdom of heaven? Yes. If I have my faith in Jesus Christ and I have that desire, but I don't act on it, can I get into the kingdom? Yes. You have desires to lust, to gossip. That's slandering that's in there. Does that mean then that you don't get to go to the kingdom? Just because you have that issue? No, if it's a lifestyle. Some versions of 1 Corinthians 6, 9, 10 say practice homosexuality. If it's a lifestyle, you're not in. If it's just something that you deal with, but you're, you're, you're seeking to overcome it, that doesn't mean that you don't get to inherit the kingdom of God. So it's a very real issue. Okay, and it's always been a real issue. It's just that that particular sin is a hot-button topic, and it is very directly spoken of as a unique sin. It brings about a very type of specific judgment from God. So that's what the Bible says to an extent in a, previous, in a brief way about homosexuality. I could go in more and tell you about how it's in the Old Testament, they equate homosexuality with bestiality. Okay? We could go through the whole story of Sodom and Gomorrah and how that, it, they had all given themselves over to homosexuality and it was an insatiable desire. Remember they were struck blind as they tried to get to those angels in Lot's house? Do you remember that story? 
They were struck blind, and they were wearing themselves out trying to get to this, these men, even though they were blind. You know what wearing themselves out means? Have you ever seen the, 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 the series Game of Thrones or a movie with zombies, where zombies are coming against the wall, and what do they do? They just start piling up on one another, trying to get over the wall. You ever see that? That's wearing themselves out. They were getting physically tired, trying to satisfy their insatiable desire to have sex with men. That's what the Bible thinks, what God thinks of homosexuality. And so he comes down hard on a nation that affirms that. You're going to have to take a stand on this issue. Risk being called names. But that's how you get into the kingdom. It's not necessarily easy.